All right, guys, we're back with another episode of Searching for Political Identity. Connor Boyack is my guest today. And I got to say, Connor, Connor's legit. And uh, he gives me hope. He's one of a few guests that is is really legit. And it gives me hope that my podcast might actually turn into something. Uh, Connor, it is such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited for the chat. Yeah, me too. Very excited, actually. So glad we connected. Yeah, you know, I'm searching for political identity. It's pretty self-explanatory. And here you are. How old are you, my friend? Uh, 40 years old. 40 years old. How old were you when you had this clarity of political ideology? Um, I would say mid to late 20s is when I was searching for my own and and found it. So by 27, 28, it was starting to form up for me. And what sources really led you that down that path? <laughs> uh, a few come to mind. I'll, I'll share maybe one. Um, after college, you know, I was, I was raised in a conservative Republican household in Southern California and uh you know that's the way i thought and believed and you know i was a republican i had no clue what that meant and uh after i graduated college i was invited by a friend to go to a uh kind of a documentary film screening for this new film that had come out it was called america freedom to fascism and it was by a woman named aaron russo who died some years ago and he was chronicling from his perspective how America had devolved from this kind of classical liberal live and let live founding fathers type of you know society into you know control and authoritarianism, foreign aggression, all these wars and everything. And that documentary for me was kind of like a smack across the face. I was presented with all kinds of insights and arguments that I had never really contemplated. It it was really the kind of shoved down the rabbit hole where I then started, you know, reading a ton and, uh, you know, learning a lot about economics and American history and peeling back the curtain, this, this superficial veneer I had grown up with about, you know, what freedom meant or the constitution or, you know, being a Republican or all these like nonsense things that didn't really have substance in my life. And so I went on search for, for substance and just started reading a ton and I'd say within you know two to three years, I had kind of come to some pretty firm conclusions, um, and you know started a blog and started writing books, and that kind of set me on the the path that I now on. Amazing. So, tell me generally, give me the elevator pitch of what that political identity is that you landed on. Well, you know, I fundamentally believe that um, individuals have natural rights and that the government is uh, a mechanism through which we delegate certain rights that we have the creature cannot exceed the creator so in all political things i i look at the equation this way do i have the right to do that to another person if, if my neighbor is smoking pot you know do i have the right to lock them in my basement or you know take their kids from them or you know, do I like morally and intrinsically have that right? Uh, if I don't, I can't ask the government to do it because the government is really just an extension of us. We we have these rights. We form a government, as the Declaration of Independence says. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. 
So we are the source of the government's rights. So in all things, we can't just say, hey, free healthcare, you know, or free this, or let's, uh, you know, lock people in cages for, you know, using these drugs or whatever. I boil everything down to, you know, if you and I were on an island without a government, what would we have the ability, the moral kind of standing and, and authority to be able to do? And it really, I think, pulls back a lot of this kind of cruft that we have, uh, which is how people see the government today. There was this French economist in the 1800s named Frederick Bastiat, very kind of sarcastic, witty, prolific writer about um, economics. And his description of government is that it's the mechanism through which everyone endeavors to live at the expense of everyone else. So government has really, in our modern society, devolved into this apparatus people leverage to get what is theirs, to get what they want. I want this stuff. I want these rights. I want these benefits. Uh, but I think that's fundamentally a misperception of what government actually is. It, it really weaponizes government uh, and turning it into this tool by which we try and bludgeon one another rather than this kind of you know, minimal protection of our rights, this live and let live approach where let's let people go peacefully do whatever they want as long as they're not harming anyone else. And at times this was called classical liberal. Today it's probably called more libertarian. Um, it's something that I think a lot of neo or modern liberals have a lot of affinity with, uh, certainly conservatives as well. And so for me, when I was searching for my political identity coming for, from more of a Republican perspective, I found that I wildly disagreed with Republicans on a, on a vast majority or not, maybe not majority, but a, a significant number of things. And then I would find myself uh, resonating with, for example, you know, criminal justice reform or repealing the death penalty or some of these traditionally, mm. quote unquote, li liberal or progressive policies. And so what I realized is that the two major camps are just tribalistic nonsense and if it's on fundamental principles, there's actually, I think, a fairly decent Venn diagram overlap of where otherwise disagreeable pe people can agree. And so now running this think tank and changing all these laws, we work with people across the political spectrum because depending on the policy or the issue, they'll be with us, they'll be against us, but it's not really this partisan entrenched tribal thing. It's like, here's mm -hmm. what I believe and what I stand for. And sometimes you'll agree, sometimes we'll disagree, but it creates a much more, I think, um, uh, you know, friendly environment, because at times we will agree. Therefore, when we do disagree, let's not consider ourselves mortal enemies. And I think the country needs a little bit more of that approach. Oh, definitely. And it's so it's so interesting that it's. Uh, I actually pulled my microphone cable out. I got so excited <laughs> to hear you to hear you say that the two sides are tribalistic nonsense. It resonates with a lot of people, certainly with me. And it's just so bizarre that to take a principled approach as you're doing with an ideology, it, the fact that that's not normal is kind of sad. So obviously I love what you're doing. So this think tank, so that's what li the Libertas Institute is. Yes. Think tank. It's impressive. I mean, clearly you've clearly got a great team building your website at the very least. Now you see all the pictures, you see all the impact you've had. It's really incredible. It's, I guess, a credit to that approach. Yeah. So why? Yeah. So the ratings business and the mainstream media, it really just feeds into that. And so at the very least, we can say without being conspiracy theorists, we can at least say it's not healthy. And we got this political system amplified by the media and we need a lot more of what you guys have going on. 
Well, think of it this way, perhaps a little thought experiment. If I'm someone in power, let's say I'm, I'm an elected official or a media mogul or whatever, and I've got a lot of power and influence, uh, who, who's my opposition? Who's, who's my enemy? Well, you know, I think it's, you know, free thinking individuals and writers and independent journalists or people who can like dig into what I'm doing and criticize me or oppose me and try and rally people against me. So ultimately, if I'm in power, I think my my greatest chance for maintaining my power and increasing my power is actually ignorance and apathy. If individuals are disengaged, then I can get away with a whole lot of shenanigans. I have kind of a, a carte blanche to, to do what I want. So I mm. thrive as someone in power in an environment of civic apathy and of, you know, the left and the right squabbling and everyone having mm. their, what Orwell called the daily hate, right? Mm. In 1984, that what am I supposed to be upset about today? Okay, now it's this, right? Mm. Meanwhile, you know, I'm over here doing my thing, like the magician's sleight of hand. I, I show you this thing, you know, to focus your attention, but my other hand is behind my back with the, the real secret. And so for me, running a think tank, educating the public, working to actually drive solutions forward, it's really interesting because the vast majority of the public is focused on the level of government that they can impact the least. Everyone is focused on national affairs, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever, certainly international affairs as well. But but especially all these national politics and machinations and everything where, you know, statistically, I mean, they can do zero. And yet their attention, their energy is not at all focused and applied towards a level of government, say, local government or even state government where they could actually move the needle. And so when I was starting Libertas Institute, I, I was actually on Mike Lee's uh, campaign back in 09 when he took on an incumbent, he and like 12 other candidates, but ultimately Mike Lee was, uh, prevailed. And I was on the core campaign campaign team of five or six people. And he got the Republican nomination and off he went to Congress. And a lot of my friends went with him. A lot of folks, you know, hey, let's, you know, fight all this TARP bailout nonsense of, you know, subsidizing all these horrible bankers and stop these wars. And, you know, Mike was a fairly kind of liberty minded uh, guy, which which attracted me to uh, helping with this campaign. But all my friends went to, to the national level, to Congress to try and change things. And I think quickly developed wrinkles and gray hair because of the stress level of trying to affect change in this horribly corrupt, you know, inefficient system full of you know, perverse incentives, uh, special interests and all the like. Meanwhile, I start this nonprofit 10, 11 years ago, uh, focused on the state level and local, and we're making all these changes. And I mean, now mm. a decade later, we've changed over hundred laws, meaningful progress, benefiting people's lives, real change. And it's, right. it's enjoyable. It's rewarding. It's meaningful. It's, it's amazing to see that. And I'm just, I mean, I was a web developer. I like, I had no, yeah, and it doesn't even appear that you have any gray hairs. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah for, fortunately, none yet. And, Incredible. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I was just a guy that was just like, you know what, someone ought to do something. And I looked right. around and I said, okay, maybe I'm someone. Why didn't you go and, to Washington with your friends? Well, because it was right around then that I was realizing that, um, as much as I was supporting this candidate, Mike Lee, it was more of a, like, you're clearly better than the other guy. So I want you to go do this. You're well suited to doing this, but that's not for me because I want to actually make progress like quickly. I'm a, I'm a very driven person. So I didn't want to go fight for a decade to maybe pass a few bills that 
are, mm-hmm. you know, playing at the margins of the problems. I wanted to really kind of Henry David Thoreau has this quote, right? For every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. Mm-hmm. And and that's always appealed to me because I I want to strike it through. I want to figure out what are these like root problems that we have. So so yeah, like I, I look around at society and everyone's all up in arms every day about all the things that they can do nothing about. And so if you could, it's like steam, right? They're letting off steam, venting on Facebook, yelling at the TV. Mm-hmm. But it's like you know, steam can power locomotives. Like steam mm-hmm. can do amazing things if you harness it and apply it towards the right productive activities. And so. That's where I feel like if we as society really focused on the level of problems that we could actually realistically impact, it would be very energizing to people to see, oh, look, I changed that or I got this right. you know, school board candidate replaced or we changed this local ordinance. Suddenly we can see that we do have the power. And then in the aggregate, as we kind of do more and more that we can affect the national conversation. But if we're just screaming at the national stuff going on, we're very disempowered. And again, for those in power, that's, I think, precisely what they want. They thrive on that Mm -hmm. constant kind of, uh, you know, frustration um, when they know that nothing is going to come of it. And so they continue doing what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Incredible. Let me ask you about the federal government. What do you think is the most corrupt aspect of it? Well, um, I'll give you an unconventional perhaps answer. I, I think it's the Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve, if we're going back to Thoreau's quote, and uh, we're talking about the root of the problem, I think most of the answers you would get to a question like that, I would perceive to be hacking at the branches. We could talk about you know, the fact that there's no term limit, so have all these people, or they're not balancing the budget, or they're um, you know, trading stocks uh you know with insider trading and they're amassing all this you know wealth they're lobbyists they're all these things yeah right? i was problems. gonna say lobbyism right 100 percent. i i agree those things are problems but as i try and contemplate what are you know the root problems i think the federal reserve is one of the roots and the reason is is that the federal reserve is what enables all like most of the shenanigans to take place there's you know if we had fiscal restraint if if Congress had to directly tax people for everything that they had to spend rather than trying to push it onto future generations or just inflate away the problem by you know printing more money, there would be a lot more restraint. There would be far less lobbying because there would be less money you know sloshing around uh, you know the the trough. There would be far mm-hmm. less cruft. There would be far less power concentrating in Congress. Because the fiscal issues would be kind of decentralized or pushed down to the states. Um, the, the issue is that the Federal Reserve is able to print up all this money and enable whatever spending Congress can do. I think we just passed $31 trillion in debt. Um, I believe this is a route that that manifests in a lot of different problems. And if the Federal Reserve was not there, if we did not have a central bank that facilitated uh, Congress's every desire and and financed all of the corruption and all the military industrial complex and all the you know bloated budgets and everything else. A lot of these kind of secondary problems w- would be minimized substantially. I think mm-hmm. perhaps some eliminated. And so to me, that's a root problem. It's why I think when, uh, for example, gosh, it was 15 years ago when Ron Paul was you know running for president. One of his big things was audit the Fed, audit the Fed, and you know, it's it's never been audited and no one really knows what's going on. And they control the interest rates. Like right now, you know, housing interest rates are going. That's all the, 
the Federal Reserve like controls mm -hmm. the strings of our economy <laughs> and uh, and fuels congressional corruption. And to me, uh, at a minimum, auditing the Fed, um, but really reforming it, if not shutting it down, would bring this country a whole host of blessings that we can't even fathom because we've been so used to this current system that I think is, uh, you know, this this root of corruption that we're seeing all around us. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance of us getting rid of it? I had a occasionally I interviewed just random folks from Twitter and I spoke to one the other day. Um, very bright guy, very liberty minded, probably call himself a libertarian, um, <laughs> different kind of cat. He certainly thinks that uh, we're going to get rid of the Fed and go to some sort of digital gold standard and quantum financial system. Do you, does any of that resonate with you? Uh, so so the Fed right now, like many other central banks, are really exploring this concept of central bank digital currencies. They're trying to um, use kind of blockchain technology and basically create you know, a digital dollar. From their perspective, it would be a digital dollar, not, a, not digital gold. Uh, if you have a you know a dollar bill on you right now, most people don't know this. You pull out your dollar bill, and and it says at the top it's a Federal Reserve note. It's not a dollar. Back in the days, they were you know silver dollars and like they were actually dollars. Hmm. Now, what we use as currency is Federal Reserve notes. Hmm. It is an obligation of debt on this private bank. Our money is a, is, is a Federal Reserve note. So what they're looking to do digitally is create the digital equivalent of that. And the problem is that then they can track everything. You look at China with the social credit scores and being able to prevent people from traveling, you know, lower their social status, deprive them of, you know, certain perks and amenities in life uh, by gatekeeping their economic activity because of a social credit score. Hey, you said this, you know, unnice thing on the internet, or you failed to, you know, cross the street on the crosswalk, or we have this whole surveillance apparatus that's scoring everyone. I think uh, that is coming in degrees to the states. And what enables it is a kind of digital payment system. I mean, look at PayPal, right? They were threatening to take 25 or 5,000 or whatever it was, I think it was 2,500 bucks away uh, from people and just remove it from their account for, you know, violating their certain terms and conditions and there was backlash and they walked it back. But it's those types of things where as we digitize everything and create these surveillance systems, mm -hmm. it becomes much easier to cancel people, to economically harm people, to deplatform people. Um, so I, I think the Fed is uh, not going away. I, much as they have some competition from Bitcoin and other crypto, um, I think they're an insanely powerful institution that has a lot of power and uh, wealth at their disposal to defend the status quo as much as possible. And I'm, I'm actually pessimistic that we uh, that we're able to change because I look around at society and I see that most people aren't even clued into them being a problem at all. They don't know the nature of the Fed. They don't know its history. Um, it's a fascinating and horribly corrupt history, but, but most people don't know. And so I, I don't know that anytime soon we're going to see any type of, you know, backlash or, or significant change. If anything, I think we're going to see them move into this digital realm and be able to exert even more of a stranglehold over people's private economic affairs. Give me um, your take on Trump and Biden as presidents, uh, you know, against the backdrop of your ideology that you believe in. How, how are those guys as presidents, as people? What's going on with that? Uh, okay, I'll start with Trump. Uh, I mean, I think he's a horrible <laughs> individual. Uh, um, 
And, uh, you know, but, but you look at certain outcomes, you look at, you know, North Korea and you look at the Middle East and, and, uh, you know, it's like, okay, clearly he's a negotiator. He's kind of a bully to get his way from a utilitarian standpoint. I liked some of the outcomes, the, you know, attempts to try and uh, reduce regulation, um, on businesses. So, I mean, there were, I think some good things he did. I, I couldn't stand his, you know, personality or approach, but I would rather have, you know, mean tweets than nuclear Armageddon. So it takes us to, you know, Joe Biden. I, um, I think he's kind of the weekend at Bernie's, you know, they're propping him up. He's reading note cards and teleprompters. He's not in charge. Uh, and, and frankly, neither was, you know, Trump. Uh, I, I think, um, I think, I mean, I, I don't love this term deep state, but, but I believe there are extremely entrenched uh, interests and you think going back to the fed or the military industrial complex or these special interests. I, I think there are people who operate, I'll say in the shadows who exert extreme influence over domestic and international affairs and uh, to focus so heavily on, uh, you know, Trump versus Biden versus Obama versus whoever the next person is. Again, I kind of feel like whoever the president president is, it's kind of the hacking at the branches. Like clearly I have preferences one over other from a utilitarian standpoint, but fundamentally when I look at like the root issues of our society, um, it's who, who the president is, is a little bit of a sideshow. It's a little bit of a distraction. Um, and I don't want to minimize how important that is because they're nominating people for the Supreme court and the federal bench and, right. you know, and, and the like role of the president, who the president is, this is something I picked up in law school. Um, historically these days, since the creation of the administrative state is much more important than probably the founders ever intended it to be because the president is making all these appointments to these regulatory agencies that have all this power. Uh, absolutely. Um, and there was a great book written uh, a few years ago by a gentleman named Harvey Silverglate called Three Felonies a Day. And uh, he did this research and came up with this conclusion that the average American commits three felonies a day uh, unknowingly, unwittingly. But the problem is the regulatory state has grown to such a degree and Congress has deferred to yeah. uh, these administrative agencies, the lawmaking and um, kind of punitive power where the agencies are coming up with their own interpretations. They have their own, you know, uh, law enforcement agencies. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, IRS hiring tax agents and, and it's literally like police for, you know, enforcing the the law. They're not using existing police. They have their own police forces. So it, that is problematic. And for that reason, I do think who the president is matters. Again, I don't want to kind of minimize that, but, um, but if we let that be the sole object of our political passion and ire and focus like many people do again i think we're kind of missing the forest for the trees and we're not realizing that we have deeper you know systemic problems that there are things that even i mean i look at someone like jfk you know like he he tried to take us off the the federal reserve standard and put us on the silver dollar and then like a week later he's assassinated and do i think the two are connected maybe maybe not i'm, I'm not the biggest you know conspiracy theorist but here was someone who was trying to push back on those in power uh, and it didn't go well for him. There, there was this fascinating story I'll share very briefly called Operation Northwoods. This has since been declassified, but, you know, Cuba is going on at the time, Cuban Missile Crisis, all this stuff. And uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military brass of the United States uh, military uh, who directly report to the president, they came up with this plan 
called Operation Northwoods, in which they proposed killing Americans and blaming it on Cubans. Well, why? It's because at the time, the American public was not sufficiently supportive of military intervention in Cuba. It was like, okay, yeah, we don't like this, but we don't want to go to war. We don't want to send troops there. That's that's where the, the public opinion polling stood. So this top brass who sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, protect people from enemies foreign and domestic, became domestic enemies by proposing to kill their fellow Americans, bomb, you know, uh, f- uh, cities in Florida, shoot down boats um, and blame it all on Cubans to incite the American public into anger uh, against Cuba to shift the polling numbers and allow the military and, and you know, push JFK to order the military into Cuba. And this is what we call a false flag event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and JFK shot it down. The only reason that didn't happen is because, so so who the president is absolutely matters, you know, but, but right. powerful people wow. who want to get their way are only going to allow a president so much discretion, mm-hmm. I think, because I think these institutions and these, um, these special interests are extremely powerful and are going to find a way to get what they want. What do you think about Alex Jones? <laughs> I think he's a, a character, uh, a nut job, an actor. Really what um, I'm at, do you think uh, there's any validity to his claims about, uh, and what do you think about these conspiracies? Do you think there's a conspiracy? And I know I hate this bad question, but what about guns and, and all these school shootings? Certainly we don't think these are false flags. Um, so, you know, Sandy Hook and, and he talks about like paid actors. You see these, you know, same, you see this photo of this person in Sandy Hook and then you see this other photo and it's the same person in this other, you know, school shooting event. And so, so I don't know, some of that may be doctored, some of that may be real. Look, I, I think, I think if you're a historian, I mean, amateur or professional, but if you're a historian and, and you understand history, you are a conspiracy theorist. I mean, there's mm-hmm. literally no way to fairly understand history without recognizing that it is rife with conspiracy. Does that mean every conspiracy theory is true? 100% no, of course not. Uh, does that mean every claim made by Alex Jones and lizard people and you know all these things? Like, no, of course not. But Alex Jones has been right about a lot of stuff. I mean, I remember years ago seeing an Alex Jones video uh, where he went to the Bohemian Grove in California and filmed uh, the cremation of care. It's this, this, um, I mean, Nixon was there. He was on tape talking about it. All these, all these uh, kind of powerful elite will go to this Bohemian Grove. And it's kind of a, you know, high society networking kind of thing. But they have these like crazy, almost like satanic type rituals. And Alex Jones and one other guy snuck in and recorded it. So I look at something like that. Do I have conclusions about that? Do I know yeah, what exactly the what, what was that all about? What what the <laughs> hell was that about? That that, that I have that, no idea. There... But but again, like stuff like this happens. We would be naive to think that right. powerful people are not coming together and finding ways to wield their influence and you know preserve or augment their power and wealth. I mean, just friggin' open a history book yeah. and you'll find numerous examples. So I'm very cautious in saying what is or isn't a true conspiracy today cuz I mean the jury's still out and who knows. Mm. Um but I am someone who's very sympathetic to this idea that there are corrupt powerful people in the government who are conspiring to do evil things. Um, and it's, I think, easier in retrospect to come back and look at, you know, weapons of mass destruction or, you know, whatever, and find that some of these things are lies. It's much harder in the present to do that. 
but I am very sympathetic and open to the idea that conspiracies do exist, that uh, people like Alex Jones who are fixated on them are sometimes right, often wrong, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't discredit them, you know, whole cloth as some conspiracy nut job, because I think people like Alex Jones serve a bit of a purpose to raise a lot of, you know, red flags and warnings and he's going to get it wrong a lot of times, but it's all, that's the downside is sometimes it's the boy who cried wolf and you see him being crazy here and here and here. Therefore you dismiss this other time when he's dead on. Um, and so I, I try and be very selective with people like Alex Jones. I, I ignore them. I don't subscribe. I don't pay attention, but when, when I think they're getting it right and onto something, I'll go see what they have to say. Cause sometimes they're willing to go dig up dirt and, and kick up some dust that no one else is. And, and on, it's like with Democrats or Republicans. We'll agree sometimes, we'll disagree sometimes. For me, it's the same with Alex Jones. Uh, I don't want to dismiss anyone entirely. I want to agree where we agree and, and work together. And even for someone like Alex Jones, you know, if he's on to something that I think is true, I'll, I'll listen to what he has to say. Sure. So before we'll wrap it up with some more, you know, earthly, normal topics. But let me ask you quickly about aliens. What do you think about that? Um, do you think we've um, ever been visited by aliens? Not a topic I've I've researched much or know much about, um, but I would say yes. I, I think aliens exist. I think uh, if they exist, they're they're humanoid. They're not like weird other creatures. Mm. Um, even from my religious perspective, I, I believe in a god that is you know populated and oversees other planets. So even from a faith perspective, I believe that. There are plenty of other people on other worlds and and surely at some point some will have developed technology to travel around or communicate. So I'm very open to the idea of aliens. I just don't think they're, you know, inter like different species. I, I would uh, assume and and uh, believe that they're more, you know, human like us. Sure. And so do you think it's reasonable you know do you think it's possible that you know there is a quote-unquote conspiracy uh no need to put quotes on it i guess uh that the government has contact you know do you think do you think that's going on um i i don't think that's going on but i wouldn't be surprised if it is i'll put it that way cool cool yeah it's pretty interesting topic okay so how should we how should we leave this conversation you know you have political clarity, you gained it, and you've done a lot with your, we've done a lot with it. You've made a big impact. It's, it's pretty amazing. Well, you've, you've kind of made it clear. I mean, the president's, you know, there's, a, so what do you think is the sleight of hand? Let's just talk about the sleight of hand that goes on. You know, if we could fix the problem, it would be to get rid of the sleight of hand and focus on the core issues. I suppose that would mean that everyone would ultimately agree with your perspective though. So what do you say to people who just have a different, you know, Hey, I'm a hardcore progressive. I think the federal, you know, and I learned in law school, the arguments against um, those well-meaning desires to, you know, provide. So, okay. Why is healthcare for all a uh, universal healthcare? Why is that a bad policy? Why wouldn't that work? Why shouldn't it work? Well, uh, I'll, I'll be brief because I know our time is wrapping. Yeah. There's a concept of negative rights and positive rights. You think yes. of like the Constitution is founding. Uh, th these negative rights are the right to be left alone, the right to life, liberty, property. I should have the right to own property, which means um, so rights have corresponding duties, whether it's a negative right or a positive right. You can't have a right without some kind of you know, duty to enforce it. If I have the right to life, you have a duty, a negative duty, because it's a negative right. You have a negative duty, meaning you shouldn't kill me. 
right? You, you don't have to do anything for me. My right to life doesn't mean you have to feed me or, you know, provide for me. It's just that you should leave me alone because I have a right to life. I have a right to liberty. You shouldn't handcuff me or lock me in your basement or kidnap me. Just don't do things. I have the right to property. Don't steal my property, right? So, so these mm. natural rights are negative rights. They're the right to basically be left alone to pursue your happiness. And so the only duty that anyone else has is a negative one. Just leave you alone and everything mm-hmm. will be good. The problem with something like, quote unquote, free healthcare, universal healthcare, right? These things are what are called positive rights. I have the right to, you know, subsidize Receive. or free housing. Yeah, I have the right to get It's something. an entitlement. And then that means there's a corresponding duty, a positive duty, not positive in the happy sense, positive mm-hmm. in the kind of productive sense, like someone has to do something positively. And so someone else has that duty. Well, where does that duty come from? Do do, should doctors be compelled? What if every doctor says no to care for people who can't pay me directly? Uh, Should we enslave them? Should we conscript them? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if taxpayers revolt and say, you know, no, we want to keep our money, stop stealing my money. Should we go to war to incarcerate them? Should we enslave them to work to fund this? And so it introduces all these complicated questions where you're asking the government to coerce people to fulfill a duty they do not naturally have because no one naturally has the duty to, you know, go to work to support other people. Uh, we have to compel people to service that uh, that duty. And so that to me is the fundamental problem. It, it turns upside down this idea of rights. It, it It is the basis in which people will conjure up all kinds of rights, you know, free tuition, subsidized school loans, free housing, you know, and that all is progressivism. It is. And and it's it's going back to what I said earlier, that quote from Bastiat, government becomes the mechanism through which everyone endeavors to live at the expense of everyone else. It's the it's the money grab bag. It's give me what I want um, rather than just, hey, I, I just want a fair shot to go, you know, build my life and just get out of my way. And if there's someone trying to hurt me, go protect me. But other than that, you know, let me go on my merry way. That's not what today's government is. This progressive notion is I want to use government to compel other people to help me in ways that I believe I'm entitled to. I think it's a great way. So is FDR just totally misguided? Um, I think so. I think the New Deal was rotten at its core. Uh, It did not save us from the Depression. It, in fact, deepened and and prolonged it. If you look at the underlying economics, I I think... um, Look, socialism is very appealing. Who doesn't like to get free stuff? Um, and but, what about you know, the, you... the, you know, because there's a, I mean, yeah, we're at the core of it now. It's, this is exactly it. Exactly. And the progressives, they feel strongly and, and they're an entrenched force. And we have to, I, they have to be reckoned with. They do. And ultimately, we have to define what we want society to be. Do and it's a culture. Want... That's the culture war. And I don't yes. think it's manufactured. See, it's authentic. I, I don't. I don't. So I, I don't, don't think, think it's sleight of hand. I th- well, I think it's overblown. I think it's leveraged by those in power. I think the media loves to whip everyone into a fervor. But I think fundamentally, real. there is a, a conflict. There is a conversation mm-hmm. to be had. But but all the animosity, all the you know toxicity, I think a lot of that is amplified by you know, politicians and the media and others who can profit off of that toxicity. Um, but no, you're right. I do think it's an authentic disagreement. It's an, I, I think really it's an identity conflict. What do we see ourselves as, as a nation? 
Are we kind of the early American rugged individualistic, you know, live and let live society? Or are we this like modern neo-Marxist post progressive, you know, let's shape society the way we want through these kind of productive programs and, you know, have the government kind of order us around. It's really an identity conflict that we're in the middle of trying to figure out who we are. Yeah. Well, you teed it up perfectly for me to say that's exactly where I am in my journey. And I look, I grew up in a suburb, in a very happy suburb uh, with a a love for the country. And I just have that. And uh, it's not perfect. And certainly improvements can always be made. But I grew up with this idea that it was a a great place and uh, the whole best country in the world thing. And that's exactly right. I'm and I'm trying to figure that out for myself as the country does the same thing. So thank you so much for joining me, sharing your knowledge and time and for really helping me, uh, you know, with my own little search here. Really helpful. Thank you so much, Connor, and for all you do. Um, where can we go? Is it ConnorBoyack.com? Yeah, ConnorBoyack.com. Libertas.org is where you can learn more about us. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Take care.